Hi everyone, you're listening to 1790 with me, Sarah Kim, and my co-host Angela Zhao. This is our first episode of 2017. Thank goodness, 2016 couldn't have gone on any longer. I'm so ready to leave the year and everything in it behind. We have a new year, a new topic, and for this episode, we will be revisiting the San Francisco State University ethnic studies strikes from 1968 to 1969. We chose this topic because our first two episodes were about people, Anna Mae Wong and Dalip Singh Sand. And so now we want to focus on an event. A big event. I mean, this is one of the most significant events of intersectional activism of American people of color. So big that we decided to split this episode into two parts. In this episode, we set the scene. Starting in 1964, students at San Francisco State University organized to bring ethnic studies to their school. Before this, no institute of higher education in the country had any ethnic studies departments. So no African American studies, no Asian American, no Latinx, Native American, nothing. The students were fed up with the lack of representation of their identities in academic settings, and they needed these ethnic departments with professors that looked like them and classes that taught their history on a personal level to grow intellectually. But they also needed them for more selfless reasons. For example, many Chinese-American students were involved with after-school tutoring programs and other forms of community outreach to nearby San Francisco Chinatown. They wanted an education that would prepare them to communicate and engage with the neighborhood in the best way possible. So Cantonese language classes and courses about the history of Chinatown would equip them with the understanding necessary to interact with their community. And the Black Students Association was particularly impassioned by the civil rights movement, which was perhaps the main impetus for this campus strike. So the movement was at its height at the same time, around 1968-1969. One of the biggest figures of the movement was Malcolm X. In Karen Umemoto's book about the events called On Strike, she says that Malcolm X called for African Americans to control the resources and institutions of their communities by any means necessary and to identify their primary enemies as established institutions and those who supported the status quo. So the Black Student Association wanted to dismantle that status quo of their school that had all sorts of resources for European studies and other generally white people studies, but neglected an education made by and designed for people of color. They demanded not just representation, but authoritative institutional control that would support the Black students and faculty at the school. Another factor that tied into the SFSU movement was a 1960 California Master Plan, which decreased the amount of black students admitted to California's public universities because it reordered California public universities into three categories and also called for stricter admissions instead of expanding higher education. The black student population at San Francisco State went from 11% to 3.6%, and other minority groups suffered as well. In addition, the SFSU president ran campus like a business. As mentioned before, the SFSU strikes were also influenced by anti-colonial and imperialist movements abroad in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. 
Interestingly, a lot of these anti-colonial movements abroad also had broad coalition movements among countries and continents during these times and slightly before as well. For example, the Bandung Conference in 1955 was a meeting between Asian and African countries organized by Indonesia, Burma, present-day Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and India. 29 countries were involved. It was a conference to oppose colonialism. The Bandung Conference also influenced leaders back in the United States, such as Malcolm X, who used the Bandung Conference in a speech in 1963. These anti-colonial struggles throughout the world bore writers and scholars who were deeply influential to the student activists at SFSU, such as Franz Fanon. The students saw themselves as a larger movement of these anti-colonial efforts around the world. The campus had a history of political activism. Students took on war protests during the 1930s and 40s and defied the age of McCarthyism in the 50s against communist hysteria. So the five months between 1968 and 1969 were not an exceptional period in time. It was a major part of the larger trend of free speech, although that term has been somewhat co-opted now by conservatives and activism in college. Then came the final turning point for concerned minority student groups and their allies. On November 1, 1968, administration suspended a black English instructor, George Mason Murray, who taught English in a program for minority students. He frightened administration with a series of statements he made, including one about allowing black students to bring guns to campus to protect themselves against racist administrators. Students were infuriated at the administration's overreach of power and attempt to censor views and teachings on campus. After this egregious act. There was no turning back. Students were ready to take on the fight against the authoritarian administrators for the sake of their education. And then the student groups, in collaboration, released their official demands with the tagline "Relevant Education," preparing to strike if necessary to obtain them in full. We're going to read a few of them for you now. First, some from the Black Students Union. One. That all Black Studies courses being taught through various departments be immediately part of the Black Studies department, and that all the instructors in this department receive full-time pay. Three, that there be a department of Black Studies which will grant a bachelor's degree in Black Studies. That the Black Studies department chairman, faculty, and staff have the sole power to hire faculty and control and determine the destiny of its department. Five. That all Black students wishing so be admitted in fall 1969. Six. That 20 full-time teaching positions be allocated to the Department of Black Studies. Ten. That George Murray maintain his teaching position on campus for the 1968-1969 academic year. And now, from the Third World Liberation Front. One. That a school of ethnic studies for the ethnic groups involved in the third world be set up with the students in each particular ethnic organization having the authority and control of the hiring and retention of any faculty member, director, or administrator, as well as a curriculum in a specific area study. Two, that fifty faculty positions be appropriated to the school of ethnic studies, twenty of which would be for the Black Studies program. Three that in the spring semester the college fulfill its commitment to the non-white students in admitting those who apply. Four that in the fall of 1969 all applications of non-white students be accepted. 
Administration responded by saying they could fulfill some, but not all of the demands listed, to which students refused to be complacent. On November 26, 1968, one month after the firing of George Mason Murray, the president of SFSU resigned, and the man who had come to take his place was no saving grace to this growing conflict. But who was he? And what comes next for the students in the longest campus strike in American history? All that and more will be on our next episode. Next time, we're going to be talking about the actual action of the strikes themselves and what it meant for ethnic studies across the country for decades to come. As usual, let us know if you want us to cover a topic and rate us on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. And that's it for this episode. See you next time.